Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Chris Paxson. I'm Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School. And uh, we're very happy to have all of you at this lecture tonight. I am not going to introduce the speaker. I'm going to introduce the person who's going to introduce the speaker. But I wanted to let you know a few things. One is that this is part of a lecture series that we're having on the media and public policy at Princeton. And what we've been doing is bringing in people who represent traditional media, new media, and who can really speak to the multiple ways that <clears throat> media both informs us about public policy, but also directly influences public policy. And the speaker that we have today, I think, could not be a better person to represent what we're trying to achieve with this series. The person who's going to introduce him is my colleague, Hugh Price. And he is the perfect person to do this for a number of reasons. One is he's the instigator behind this series. He, it was his vision, his plan, and he really helped us um, bring together a group of superb people to invite. I'm very happy to have Hugh as my colleague, faculty member in the Woodrow Wilson School. He is uh, formerly the president and CEO of the National Urban League. His specialty is education, criminal justice, um, civil rights issues, and he has some background in media and journalism. So uh, I would like to introduce him, welcome him, and he will introduce our speaker. Thank you, Chris, for uh, setting the context for today's speech and for your very generous remarks. I've occasionally had the privilege of introducing someone who needs no introduction, and today is such an occasion. Uh, the challenge on occasions like this, uh, when introducing a luminary like Tom Brokaw, is to figure out what to say that cannot easily be found on your own on Wikipedia. As you know, uh, Tom was the anchor and image of NBC News for nearly a generation. And if you're like me, you've probably often wondered what lies behind the instantly recognizable face and the voice. As Dean Paxson um, may have mentioned, or certainly I can tell you, Tom and I served uh, together on the board of the Mayo Clinic. And uh, significant portions of our board meetings were devoted to healthcare research, practice, and policy to topics like the latest innovations in genomic mapping and the implications for predicting, diagnosing, and treating disease, topics like the need to bring medical records into the 21st century technologically, and the merits of alternative healthcare reform scenarios. In other words, the board meetings were the equivalent of an intensive Princeton seminar. I can attest from having served with him, that Tom was an active and astute participant in every facet of the board, and particularly the policy deliberations. He asked probing questions and made incisive observations about the policy and politics of health care reform. However, we didn't invite Tom to speak about bending the health care cost curve this evening. That's tomorrow's talk at the Woodrow Wilson School by Mark McClellan, who's the former administrator of Medicaid and Medicare. So let me tell you about the other revelation that dawned on me from serving on the Mayo board with Tom, and that is that he's a brilliant student of the American psyche and spirit, the American dream and the American people, and thus a brilliant student of America itself. He was born in South Dakota. His father was a construction supervisor and his mother was a postal clerk. 
Tom and his wife split their time between New York City and their ranch in Montana. Among his greatest assets are his capacities for listening and observing, absorbing and reflecting, and of course, communicating. He, in other words, he has a tactile feel for what makes America tick, for the sharp divides and the shared aspirations, the progress that we've made as a nation, even though America remains a work in progress. And just as the genius of Steve Jobs was his compulsion for examining product ideas and design through the prism of customers, Tom Brokaw's unique contribution to the healthcare reform debates on the Mayo board was his consistent focus on examining policy options from the perspective of patients. Not the well-heeled patients from around the world who view Mayo as a destination provider, but the everyday patients, the farmers, the teachers, the poor folk, who look to Mayo and its network of primary care clinics for their everyday medical needs. This is the Tom Brokaw behind the voice and the visage that we all know. This is the Tom Brokaw who has written a series of books about the American experience, the latest of which is The Time of Our Lives, A Conversation with America. And after his speech and the Q&A, by the way, there will be a book signing event in the lower level of Robertson. So please join me in giving a warm Princeton welcome to an American icon, Tom Brokaw. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. And thank you, Hugh, for that very, very generous introduction. I was a little worried you got were going to get carried away with my role on the Mayo Board and have me scrubbing and doing open-heart surgery by the end of the introduction. I can assure you that that is not the case. I must tell you, I've been at this for a long time now, a half century next summer, when I begin my journalistic career. And yet, it's always a thrill and almost an out-of-body experience to come to an institution like Princeton and to be able to be a speaker in a Woodrow Wilson School series. I say that in part because I'm always haunted by my own academic background. When I was a young undergraduate, I came out of high school, kind of a whiz kid, recruited by Ivy League schools. I went off to the University of Iowa and immediately went off the rails pretty seriously for two years, retreated to the University of South Dakota, uh, still a political science major, but without much direction. And there I happily fell under the guidance of a legendary dean of the political science department, Bill Farber, who had turned out generations of governors and senators and members of the Federal Reserve. And he took me aside one day and he said, I have a plan, Tom. I want you to leave here for at least a semester and get all the wine, women, and song out of your system. <laughs> and I thought that I had won the lottery ticket at that point. And I did go for less than a semester and realized what kind of a world it is when you don't have a college education. I was then uh, humbled in a way that is hard for me to even describe now and went back to Bill and he filled out my class card and put down my grade point expectations, won the attention of my wife Meredith again, and life went on from there in 1960. In the midst of all this, I was uh, at home watching the election night between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. 
And at the end of that night, which was 8 o'clock in the morning, I knew what it was that I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a network correspondent. I wanted to cover national politics and maybe even get the network to pay for me to see the world. On that latter count, I sometimes realized I overwished in the places that I have been. Nonetheless, life went on. It worked out pretty well. And there came a time when I was beginning to get recognized for honorary degrees in Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, lowered their standards and decided to give me an honorary degree, but they decided to call my old mentor, Bill Farber, to get some background on me. And they said, Dr. Farber, we'd like to just kind of get a read on Tom's undergraduate experience. There was a very short pause, and Bill said, well, to be perfectly candid, we thought the degree that we gave him here was an honorary degree. <laughs> so I have worn that ankle, that metaphorical ankle of failure and recovery for the rest of my days. And then when you're in the kind of business that I'm in, um, you do go through those various phases of recognition. Uh, if there's an oxymoron in American life, I suppose it is hum humble anchorman. We just don't exist. But the audience and the viewers have a way of kind of keep us, keeping us in some perspective. My first job was in Omaha when Meredith and I got married. I worked the morning shift there doing three broadcasts a day and then on Saturday nights for very little money, money you know, covering blizzards and fires and school closings. Went on from there to Atlanta, covered the civil rights movement in the 60s, from there to Los Angeles, caught the rise of Ronald Reagan and the rise of Jerry Brown for that matter and the whole counterculture movement, the anti-war movement, from there to the White House. And then I was picked to become the chief correspondent for the Today Show. And I was 36 years old and feeling pretty pumped up about that. I was in New York. We were going to be living there. I'd be the principal correspondent on the morning broadcast, able to still cover politics while I was doing all that. And I was in Bloomingdale's department store wandering around shortly after we arrived, and a man began to follow me. And I could almost read the expression on his forehead. He was saying to himself, yeah, I wonder if that's Tom Brokaw. And so what I did in my newfound hubris, I kind of paused and looked at him, very meaningful, and dropped my head as if to say, yes, I'm Tom Brokaw. <laughs> Hoping it would discourage him, but it only encouraged him, obviously. He came running up to me, and he said, you're Tom Brokaw, right? And I said, yes, that's right. And he said, I'm from Omaha. You used to work in Omaha. I said, that's right, I did looked at me for a long moment and said, so whatever happened to you anyway? <laughs> now I would be able to tell him I find myself on a stage at Princeton, hoping that maybe we can have a conversation about America, where we've been, where we are, and where we need to go. I began to have this conversation with myself in a matter of speaking in the spring of 2009 when I went to Dresden, Germany to interview our new president, Barack Obama. I had come from Normandy, which was the beginning of the celebration of the 65th anniversary of that momentous uh, military invasion, in part because I wrote a book called The Greatest Generation, which began there. And I went to Dresden to interview our new president. And then as I stood there, I thought about all that I had been witness to in my lifetime and the changes that were constantly occurring around us. Dresden, Dresden had been firebombed within an inch of its life at the end of World War II. And then it lived the next 40 years behind communist lines. They were rebuilding the city and that part of Germany brick by brick. 
Here was an African-American president from the United States. And when I was covering the civil rights movement in the darkest of the days, I always had hopes. But I couldn't have had the hope that we could elect an African-American president that soon after the turn of the century. Moreover, he was going to Dachau with Elie Wiesel to visit the site of one of the most notorious death camps, the Holocaust, which still lingers, obviously, in the consciousness of good men and women everywhere. And I'd come from Berlin, the most cosmopolitan of cities, this shining example of the determination of the German people to rebuild their capital and to restore the arts and the, and the life that it had once had. And then I thought, I was born in 1940. Berlin was the capital of the most evil empire in the history of mankind, led by a man who to this day we simply cannot explain, Adolf Hitler. Dresden was leveled, now being rebuilt. Germany has been reunified. The Soviet Union has collapsed and millions of people have been liberated. There's a rising power in the East, China, which for so much of my lifetime had been a blank space on a map that might as well have had the label beyond here, serpents lie. Now it was about to become the second largest economy in the world. And I was interviewing the President of the United States and I said to him, you know, Mr. President, I've come here from Berlin. I was the only correspondent there the night the Berlin Wall came down. He said, oh, Tom, I remember. I was in law school at the time. And I thought, oh, my God, he was in law school at the time. <laughs> it was just yesterday in my life. And I came home from that trip with my mind not so much reeling as roiling because I had, was approaching my 70th birthday. And I was deeply engaged in a new experience. I was a grandparent. I was looking at the children of my children and thinking about the lives that they may have. And so I began to try to put some thoughts together, and I began to take the temperature of the country. Uh, the one part of Hugh's introduction to this right is that I can pretty much land on almost any main street in America, given how I have grown up as a journalist, and tell you within about 20 minutes where the Republicans are having coffee in the morning and where the Democrats are having coffee in the morning. Moreover, I live out there a lot. I spend time not just in Montana, but on the highways across this country away from the interstate. And I began to listen more carefully to the anxieties of people. And I encountered questions that I never had in the course of my personal and professional life. People were coming up to me and saying, with great earnestness, Republicans and Democrats and independents alike. What happened to the America that we thought we knew? Which is the opening line of my book, because I shared their question. But the question that troubled me even more in many ways, I had always believed was the heart of the American dream. Parents and grandparents were saying, Mr. Brokaw, I wonder what you think. I'm just very worried that our children will not have the lives that we've had. I'd never heard it expressed in quite that fashion before, even during the darkest days of the 1960s, when Dr. King was assassinated and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. We were in war in Vietnam, and that year alone, in 1968, we lost 15,000 people in the far-off jungles. The president was forced to resign. The counterculture had taken hold, was dividing deeply families along value lines. But there was this continuing belief that the next generation would have better lives than the preceding one. 
And so I went back to my ranch, and as I began to put my thoughts down, I began to wander across the country as well to plumb the depth of feeling. And the anxiety was greater, I, I think that it's fair to say, than any time I can remember in my lifetime about how so many things went wrong all at once. The economy unraveled on us. We were in the two longest wars in our nation's history. And these wars were being fought by less than 1% of the population, most of them drawn from the working and lower middle classes, all of them volunteers, and so many of them representing the third or fourth generation in their family to serve in uniform. And they're coming back to a country with grave physical and psychological wounds or in body bags. And nothing was asked of the rest of us during all of that. We paid no additional taxes. In fact, there was a tax cut. If we so chose, we didn't even have to think about those wars. We could go about our daily lives. Well, other families were living in constant fear that the phone would ring. The single best anecdote, I suppose, reflection of how so many families felt came from a mother in Minneapolis that I met two years ago. Minnesota has a military appreciation fund, typical of Minnesota. They're reaching out, trying to provide some assistance to these returning veterans. There's a woman who is a, an executive at the Target Corporation. Her son was going off as a National Guardsman to Iraq. It was a busy day for her, but he insisted she come to the airport. He would be there with his wife and daughter, but he wanted her there as well. And she said, my life changed the moment I stepped out of my car because I saw young children clinging to daddy's pant leg. This is a guard unit going back for its second tour. And young wives wondering how they could get along while their husbands were away. And then when the plane lifted off, the colonel turned to me and said, your son has volunteered you to be in charge of the families while they're away. She said, I'm very busy. And he said, I think that you have an obligation here. And she quickly agreed. And then she told this audience, by the end of the first week, I learned a fundamental truth of military families. When you have someone serving abroad in the war zone, you go home and you pull the blinds across the window that overlooks the driveway because you can't bear to see the military vehicle arriving with the chaplain inside. That's the kind of terror that those families live with every day, the kind of anxiety that was not visited upon the rest of us. And I use that, if you will, as a kind of point of departure about how we have to knit ourselves back together again that in a democratic society, it is unjust to have less than 1% take all the bullets and pay the price. It's more than unjust. In a way, it's immoral. And so as I went across the country, I would talk to young audiences and groups like this about the need for us to find ways that we become, as we always have been during our greatest challenges, not just whole, but more than the sum of our parts. And to do that, I thought the first step ought to be that we have to, metaphorically, re-enlist as citizens to step forward and know that we have an important part to play in the destination of this country. Everyone in this auditorium, including those of you who were members of the greatest generation, 
are the beneficiaries of the sacrifices of that generation that came of age during the Great Depression, when life was about sacrifice and deprivation and common cause. And then just when they were beginning to emerge from that, they were asked to go thousands of miles across the Pacific and thousands of miles across the Atlantic and fight the two greatest wars in the history of mankind. And we had a very short time to prepare. In 1939, we were the 16th military power in the world. So many of the veterans that I interviewed from that war said they trained with wooden rifles. But the second thing they would say to me is, but I couldn't believe basic training. I got my first good breakfast and my first new pair of boots. They had been without so much for so long. And five years later, they came home. And one of the great strokes of genius the Congress of the United States, they created the GI Bill, and they went to college in record numbers. They got married in record numbers, and they gave us new industries and new institutions and new states and new art and new science. And they gave us the underpinning that we still enjoy today. That was their legacy. That is the road that we have been able to travel. And so, appropriately, it was called the American century, the 20th century. And then the clock chimed midnight on 1999, and we run a new century with new challenges. But we continued on as if this great American cornucopia would always be full, and we could just take from it and not have to give back. And now we're paying the price for that. And as a result, I believe, there is no more appropriate time than an election year to begin to have the dialogue that is required for us to determine what is the legacy that we want to leave behind. I do it when the parents and grandparents come to me and talk about their children and their concerns they will not have the lives that they've had by suggesting it may be time to recalibrate the answer to that question. It's always been a kind of quantitative answer and in a quantitative assumption when the question is asked. Will my children make more money than I do? Will they be able to go to more expensive colleges? Will they travel more than I do? Will they have better jobs and a larger home and more cars and take grander vacations? Well, we've learned that there's a finite capacity for all of that. And it does come with a price as well if we don't have proportion and fundamental values in that equation. So in this book, I'm trying to retool the answer to say that what we ought to be thinking about as a society for our children and our grandchildren is that how can we have more economic justice in America? How can we prepare this country for what we know will be the great competition in the remaining years of the 21st century against China and Brazil and India and Russia and the emerging nations? And that is an education. How will we finally begin to restore and repair public education to such a degree that everyone will have an equal opportunity at being well-educated? What I find most encouraging about education, and I write about this as well, is that it's finally on the agenda. People are paying attention. I know what's going on here in New Jersey. It's certainly going on across the river in New York, but across the country as well. Because I think that education will be the currency of the 21st century. 
The best educated societies will be the ones that are best able to compete, and it's not just for the sake of competition. It is so that societies, and especially ours, will not be hostage to the dictates of others. Moreover, that we'll be able to continue our great tradition of exporting our values and our political system and the richness of our rule of law if we have a well-educated population because the world is a smaller planet with more people and folks, not just at Princeton, but across America will be leaving at least temporarily their home territory to work abroad and come back. Moreover, I decided that it was time for another bold idea. Having been embedded with the Special Forces and the 10th Mountain Division in Iraq and in Afghanistan, I had witnessed the incompatible mission of these brave and highly trained young warriors fighting the bad guys by night in very hostile territory and then getting in their Humvees and their Kevlar vests and their locked and loaded weapons and going into the nearby village to win hearts and minds. First, they'd have to shake down the village to make sure there were no contraband weapons, and then they would begin to talk with the village elders. And in every one of those experiences, I could see in the eyes of the indigenous people, the merchants, and those who were just hanging around the public square, enormous skepticism, whether it was Iraq or in Afghanistan. And I thought when I came home, and it was reinforced on subsequent visits, that we have to put a new face on America that it can't be just a militarized face because while we're out there fighting wars and the image of America primarily is camo, big weapons, Humvees and patrols, the Chinese are making deals all over Africa, not just with governments but with tribes. They're building roads and work camps and extracting natural resources. It's going on as well in Central and South America. They're building factories right up on the border in Mexico, across the border from El Paso. A friend of mine who's a contractor down there took me to the fence, and just on the other side of the fence was this enormous building, gleaming, with new worker housing being built off to the side. And my friend said, so what do you think that is? And I said, I have no idea. He said, it's a factory that I built. I couldn't get an American company to occupy it. The Chinese are operating it and they're building Dell computer parts with Mexican workers. That's part of the new reality that we have to deal with. As I thought about that, I thought, perhaps it's time for another big, bold idea, something akin to the GI Bill of Rights at the end of World War II. Why shouldn't we think about public service academies in America? Just for purposes of discussion, six of them attached to land-grant schools across the country. Cornell is a land-grant school. Kansas State, Colorado State, my home state of South Dakota, South Dakota State, there are a lot of them in the Southeast, North Carolina State and South Carolina State. Have a lottery, pick six of them. Have three-year both entry-level and postgraduate programs in worker skill set that is required in the new manufacturing and in the emerging markets area, but also postgraduate work in medicine, engineering, in conflict resolution, in organizational skills, and make it public-private. Have the John Deere Fellow 
in third world agriculture. The Caterpillar Fellow, or Fellows, more accurately, in construction. The Johnson & Johnson Fellow in medicine and public health. The Donald Trump Fellow in hairstyling. You, you know, you can, <laughs> you can imagine all sorts of possibilities. These young people get their specialized training, either fan out around the world or they're assigned domestically because we have greater needs here all the time as a result of natural disasters. And after three years or maybe four years, they come back to the home office, as it were, and they have two years to prove themselves up. Well, think of the possibilities for those companies. They've gotten a tax credit, they're sharing in the salary, but they've gotten a wholly formed employee who may know the language or the culture in distant places where they're doing more and more business. Moreover, that young Public Service Academy graduate has a new sense of commitment, not just to their country, but to mission and to each other, because they've had a shared experience that is unique. I say that in part because while I'm in awe of this generation, and especially the nimble tools at their disposal. I think our national dialogue about the wise use of those tools has been inadequate at this point. When I go to university audiences or even to high school audiences, I talk to them about the extraordinary power that they have at their fingertips that would not have been imagined in the early part of my lifetime. In fact, I got to know Bill Gates reasonably early and not even Gates saw the power of the internet coming in the way that it has formed and continues to form. We're really just in the seminal stages of this technology. You're witness to these sweeping changes every day. But I'd like to remind those audiences that you won't solve global poverty by hitting delete. That global warming won't be resolved by hitting backspace. The phrase that I use, it will do us a little good to wire the world if we short-circuit our souls. And when it comes to personal use, social media, which is the current rage and will continue, I'm confident, a Stanford law student asked me a very apt question. I was out there doing some work in this very field. And I was work living in the courtyard, working in the courtyard of the Stanford Law School, and this bright young man came up from Santa Barbara, senior, said, Mr. Brokaw, you've written a lot about the generations in America. What about my generation and the real meaning of friend? Have we devalued that phrase and the relationship of friend? We now use it as a verb. And so I began to think about that as well and the need to have a discussion about it. So one of the things I like to say to young audiences is no text message will ever replace the first kiss. And I never want to hear a song that has as its lyric, a tweet is just a tweet as time goes by. <laughs> These are tools, and they're extensions of our hands and heart. And they have enormous capacity for communication and for reaching each other and finding common ground. And we ought to be thinking about that beyond just where we're going to meet for coffee or how we're going to gather a group for a Saturday evening. There is an extraordinary amount of work going on in that very area. My youngest daughter, I have these overachieving daughters, our youngest daughter was in Haiti 
uh, this year on three different occasions, 10 days at a time, living in a tent, rodents running over the top of her. But we were hearing from her every day, and she was able to reach out to specialists in her field. She's a clinical therapist and a grief counselor. She does, deals with emotional trauma. To reach back to the United States, to people that have been her mentors or her contemporaries when she encountered an especially difficult problem. And through the magic of cyberspace, she could knit together a more complete approach to some of the cases that she was dealing with. That's just one small example. She talked about our relationship with the Mayo Clinic and healthcare. And you just can see the possibilities there every day. There are also the possibilities, obviously, of people developing a nosebleed. And as my daughter, who's an emergency room physician, the oldest one, says, you know, they develop a nosebleed, go online, and think that they've got a brain tumor, and I've got to deal with them when they come to the emergency room. She said we need a little more grandma sensibility in our health care in America as well. But we need to have a dialogue about that. We need to be talking about that within our families, within our institutions, and I believe during an election year. Which brings me to the central thesis of this lecture series about the role of the media. I'm going to surprise some of you. A lot of people in audiences like this stand up and say, Mr. Brokaw, whatever happened to American journalism? I grew up with Huntley Brinkley and Walter Cronkite, or with you and Dan and Peter. And it's just not the same. It's just cable stations shouting at each other and looking to divide the country every waking hour, left, right, and in between. And I say to them, you may be a little astonished but I love the current environment because we've never had as many choices as we do now. I can get up in the morning and read overnight speeches from the political trail and also the Financial Times of London. There's a new crown prince in Saudi Arabia. It's likely I'll be going over there after the first of the year to spend some time with him. I'm able to get think tank takes on what the new policies in Saudi Arabia may be. I'm reading the dispatches from the Saudi foreign ministry on a constant basis. I'm in touch with friends of mine who live in that part of the world. The difference is we can no longer be couch potatoes. There was a time not so long ago when you got up in the morning, got the morning paper off the front stoop, watched a little bit of the Today Show, caught a little bit of talk radio to catch the weather and traffic on the way to work, came home at night, watched a bit of the local news, and then sat down, we hope, in front of the evening network news caught a bit of the late news, and that was it. Let me also tell you something that is largely hidden in the kind of, from the rosy rearview mirror that existed. I was a part of that at the beginning. It was very exciting. First of all, network television news exploded across the landscape, and they were desperate for people, and they would take you on a meritocracy basis. You didn't have to have a degree from Princeton or Yale or from Harvard to go to work for one of the networks. If you could do the job, you could get one. And that was very exciting. It opened up the field for a lot of us. But at the same time, the news that you got in those days was seen and delivered through the prism of white middle-aged men who lived on the eastern seaboard. It was reasonably narrowly cast. They took the big issues very seriously, but there was so much 
that was left off to the side. At the beginning of the gender equality movement, it was treated more as a sideshow than as a serious subject because of the generational bias of so many of the men who were making those decisions. It's a much more small d democratic, uh, pluralistic business now in terms of what you can get and where you get it from. Moreover, if you look at the kinds of people that are making the decisions these days, they represent the broad spectrum of American life. They come from all corners of this country, from uh, a wide variety of socioeconomic backgrounds. The Times, the editor of the New York Times now is a woman, Jill Abramson. We have women in senior executive positions at NBC News. Katie Couric and Diane Sawyer, Leslie Stahl are three of the most powerful journalists in the electronic field. You go on the political trail now and it's at least 50-50 in terms of the kinds of correspondence that you see men and women who are covering all of this. The difference is on our side of the line, we have to be much more aggressive about where we get the news. We have to develop a filtration system, if you will. Is this someone trying to manipulate me? Does it hold up over time? Can I trust the integrity of what I'm being told? Or is this just one more attempt to move me in a direction by a blogger or by a website? And it happens at warp speed. So it requires us to take a deep breath from time to time. The woman who works for me in Montana, uh, who went to Montana with her husband because they really wanted the ranch life, but it's pretty isolated out there, and she's, fair to say, pretty apolitical, very bright, but doesn't pay a lot of attention to the more cosmic issues of the day because she's so busy just holding the ranch together. But about once a week in the summertime, she'll come to me, her eyes this big, and say, Tom, you're not going to believe what I read on the Internet this morning. And my answer is always the same. I say, Karen, you're right. I'm not going to believe what you read on the Internet this morning. <laughs> it's that kind of healthy skepticism, I think, that we have to pump up in our consciousness as we take in information from this astonishing new technology that is available. It is such a chaotic state that I liken it to the creation of a second Big Bang. We're creating a new universe. We're looking out on this universe and trying to determine which of these planets will support life and which ones won't, which ones will merge and have a superior life form and which ones will drift too close to the sun and simply burn up. Now, having said that, at the same time, I am more than a little disappointed that we're not having the kind of conversation yet that we need to have about the big issues before us. Because I do think that this country is at a crossroads and it needs to be determining with more sophistication, with greater depth, the route that we want to take. Most of the debate on the Republican side has been dictated by the Tea Party movement. Now, I'll say this for the Tea Party. This surprises audience as well. Tea Party members played by the rules. They got angry, they got organized, they got to Washington, they stayed on message, and they stayed disciplined. And they're driving the debate on the Republican presidential nomination race way out of proportion to their numbers. But it's because they have discipline and 
organization that they're doing as well as they are. Occupy Wall Street or Occupy whatever has less definition, less discipline, and it's kind of a more amorphous movement and therefore it's not having the same impact that the Tea Party is because it has such a wide range of goals and missions. It's much more random at this point. But having said that, we've got to be able to create a forum in which people can find out the kinds of hard choices that are going to be required to make a decision about who we're going to elect as our next president. And I would hope that as the campaign begins to unfold a little more, we'll begin to see more and more of that. At the moment, it is a scrum. And this is not unusual nor unique to this time. This is when the candidates are trying desperately to get on the board on the Republican side to get the presidential nomination. And they'll do whatever is necessary to do just that. And they'll play to the base, as it were. We've seen that in Democrat, on the Democratic side as well. When Bill Clinton was running, for example, in an effort to succeed George Bush. He had a wide array of candidates, you may remember, around him, but he was the one who was taking the more centrist position and ended up with the nomination. So this is how the process plays out. Is it better or worse now than it has been in the past? Let me just share with you two anecdotes. One I think will probably come as a startling surprise, but let me begin with one that's slightly more contemporary. The great election of 1948 was Tom Dewey versus Harry Truman. Harry Truman was still an unknown quantity for so many people. He was little known as the Vice President of the United States and suddenly, with the death of the giant of American politics in the 20th century, FDR, he was running the country and had to make the decision about dropping the bomb. He had to deal with the economic chaos in the post-war years as well. And the Republicans were coming after him with everything that they had, including, they thought, their best candidate, Tom Dewey, who was New York District Attorney. He was a man who had enormous, uh, uh, an enormous following on Wall Street and the financial community. There's a new book out on that race, and I've been reading the speeches of Harry Truman. You think it's tough now? Harry Truman, in a couple of his speeches, likened Tom Dewey to Adolf Hitler and Mussolini by name. He said, Tom Dewey is nothing more than the puppet of the big money interest in New York, just like Adolf Hitler was in Germany in the 1930s, or Mussolini was in the 1930s in Italy. Can you imagine? Now, the second anecdote. It turns out that Abraham Lincoln was an early blogger under a pseudonym, no less when he was very active as a young lawyer in Illinois state politics, and all the newspapers were highly partisan. Abe Lincoln was attacking one of his political rivals under an assumed name with these vitriolic attacks in the paper on a regular basis. The opponent knew who was writing it and challenged him to a duel. And Abraham Lincoln, as the man who was challenged, got to choose the weapons and chose broadswords, big rangy guy. And they met at dawn in the state of Missouri where duels were legal. Thank God cooler heads prevailed. And the duel was called off. And Lincoln regretted 
those attacks and that moment for the rest of his days. So we've had this kind of robust, often indefensible debate going on in American politics for a long time. But that does not mean that we ought not to dedicate ourselves to the next year to having the kind of dialogue and discussion that we all know will be necessary for us to move forward together because conditions have changed profoundly. We're no longer a country that can just automatically recycle. The world is so interconnected now financially that if Greece gets the flu, we're in danger of getting pneumonia. We have a country that has 40% of its GDP made up of financial services, which does, is not involved in the manufacture of anything. We have high school students emerging, going to college, and 40% of them need remedial training in reading and in math. We have a middle class that is losing ground, while the upper 1% is gaining ground in proportions that are staggering. What troubles me most of all as a son of a working class American, my father was, in effect, let out by his family when he was 10. It was such a hard scrabble family. And found a patron in a, in a Swedish homesteader. I suppose now he might be called up in charges of child labor abuse. This man took my dad in and taught him everything, how to drive a team of horses, how to handle a shovel, how to drill a well. And as my father continued to evolve as a working class man, he got the kind of skills that were really masterly in terms of operating caterpillars and large shovels and graders and could always find work. Because he had a strong back and a good pair of hands, he was not uneducated. He was a man who was educated on his own terms. And he had the good sense to marry my mother who was so bright and so capable, so wise in so many ways. But they had a true working class life and they could count on that. My dad could get a good wage. And because they had a thrift gene built into them during the Depression, they always saved some money. And their great dream was that one of their children would be the first in the family to go to college and that they would own their own home and have a decent retirement. And all of that came true for them. I think about my father now, if he were starting over again. What kind of work would be available to him out there? And I think about those factory workers in Detroit who came back and went on the line for Ford and General Motors and Chrysler and got the good wage, got the decent pension, and had the good life. Now their offspring or their grandchildren are racing across the country to outsource factories or they're working at half the real wage that their parents did. In most middle-class households, both parents are working. It's, those are the kinds of issues that we need to be addressing and thinking about, and there ought to be much more discussion about them, I think, in the popular national media. And it's not just all eat your spinach. In 09, I went across the country on Highway 50, and it was a revelation to a lot of my friends in New York what I found out there. I found constant hope and constant anxiety at the same time. I found a country that felt it was walled off from Washington that there was a completely different culture that existed within the Beltway, played by different roles, and spent most of its time 
shouting, not listening. Whereas in Main Street America, the Republican banker was working with a Democrat who happened to own a backhoe and needed some short-term financing. Or Cardio, where I met in Kansas. There was a Tyson food plant nearby, and they had a lot of Mexican-American workers. And I said, how are you doing with that population? He said, best customers I've got. They pay their bills on time, and we're going to find a way to keep them in this community for the long haul. That's always been the genius of this country. We are, we were, and we will continue to be an immigrant nation. And in that immigrant nation ethos, we have always believed that we can solve problems if we do it together, if we find to be more than the sum of our parts. And I think that has been lost from the national dialogue in this year. And it's going to take a kind of proactive attitude on the part of everyone to step forward and say, you're not going to make these decisions without my voice and be tough with their elected representatives, Democrat and Republican, when they come to them asking for votes about what they've done to advance the general welfare and the common good. I'll leave you with just one other anecdote, if I may. It's based on an earlier book. Actually, I'll leave you with an anecdote from this book, because I think it kind of sums it up, and it's the grandparents' prerogative, if you will. When Meredith and I first began to have grandchildren, we couldn't wait for them to get at a certain age so we could introduce them to the joys of some of our passions, which include the American wilderness, spending time there. And so when our San Francisco daughters got to be five and seven, they came to the ranch in Montana and Meredith announced to them, we're going on your first overnight camping trip. We're going to go about four miles up into the wilderness. There's a little tiny cowboy cabin that they use back there during roundup time. It's off trail. You can do it. We'll have a cookout tonight and then we'll spend the night there. I could tell in their little wide eyes that they were slightly anxious about all this. We got them a backpack that they could just carry an overnight clothing change and headlamps and we carried the food up and we went through the trackless forest and saw elk and a bear and it was pretty exciting. There was some kvetching along the way about the bugs and the, you know, the long steep downhill. But we got there and everything was fine. We cooked outside and then if you might expect when it gets dark in Montana, it gets dark quickly and it gets very dark. So we explained to them that they would be sleeping in the little cabin in their sleeping bags with their headlamps and that Meredith, who they call Nan, and I would be just outside in our sleeping bags. And we tucked them in and we got in our sleeping bags and very quickly we heard the buzz of their conversation from inside the cabin. And about 30 seconds later, we heard two little feet hit the floor. And shortly after that, our youngest granddaughter was standing on the porch overlooking our sleeping bags. And she said in a very commanding voice, Nan, we need an adult in here now. <laughs> That's where I think the country is. I think we need an adult in here now. Thank you all very much.
remarkable. Thank you, Tom. Uh, we have uh, about 15, 20 minutes at most for Q&A. There are folks in the audience with uh, microphones. Please hold it. If anyone wants to ask a question, please let the mic holders know, and we will start with students. Uh, is there a question in the house that we can kick off? Any students? If you have, um, if you have no questions, we have I'm answers. I'm hold out for students. The last time I did this, I called on a very young person who I thought was a student. She yeah. turned out not to be. I made a friend for life. She was very happy about that. Uh, Hugh, but there's, let me, there's one right there. Okay, let's start. Yes. Can you turn the mic on? I've approached the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. If our army was no longer a volunteer army, and if everyone at least had to share the sacrifice of our soldiers. How do you believe Americans might have viewed the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan differently had everyone, had all parts of society had to share in the sacrifice of our soldiers? How do, I, how do you feel that America could have used war differently if there had been shared sacrifice? Oh. Well, I, uh, actually, I think there was a missed opportunity uh, when we went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, people often ask me, what was the single hardest assignment you ever had? And it was 9-11. There was no question about that uh, because it was so unexpected. It was, it was so violent and the cost was so high. But what was heartening um, 36 hours later is how the country came together. You know, you had Republicans and Democrats on the steps of the Capitol singing God Bless America, linking arms. And all across the country, a little town of Big Timber, Montana, where I spent a lot of time, population 1,100, they stood at the two intersections with fireman's boots and collected money and collected a couple thousand dollars. That was a missed opportunity, I thought, for not just the president, but by the way, for Democratic leaders as well, to say we should seize this moment. I said on the air that day, this will change us. I didn't quite know how, but having been a student of history, I knew how much we'd been changed by earlier experiences. This will change us. We're going to war. And the, it's an, an immutable fact of history that when you have this kind of trauma on a society, there are changes that occur, and you manage them best when you do have the common sense of sacrifice, when everybody feels a piece of it. But in fact, that was not the case. Uh, taxes were cut. There were no additional gasoline taxes. We were not asked to think about what was going on in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Um, and that has nothing to do, by the way, with the wisdom of going to war. I'm just talking about the simple fact that we were at war. And, and the other part of it, frankly, is that it's not just the working class kids who are joining the regular Army or Navy or Marine Corps or the Air Force, but in these communities across America, the National Guard units were going. The first responders belonged to the National Guard. The fireman, the factory floor manager, the guy who runs the gas station, that's where they were pulling those people. And some of those guard units went two and three times. I've, um, I've been gone from my hometown for 49 years. They think I'm going to move back any day now. And, and, and they had a guard unit went over there twice, and uh, three guys were killed, population 12,000. And one of the young men came home gravely, gravely injured, and, and our family got involved with his rehabilitation, in part for a personal reason. He was living in a house that my mother and dad had built, it turns out, uh, when he left with his family, his young family. And so we, we felt a kinship, and then I've stayed in touch with him. But that town will take care of Corey and Jennifer for the rest of their lives. They're 120 miles from a VA hospital. It's a 
it's a prosperous little town, but it doesn't have a lot of surplus stuff. But they understand what their commitment is. The core is one of theirs. They're going to take care of them. That doesn't happen in big cities or at elite institutions like Princeton or Yale or Harvard or, or the University of Michigan, frankly, because those places are not sending the kids off. They are in the working class towns. And that's something we have to think about from now, from this day forward. They're coming back after these wars, and there's something called reintegration. They've been gone for 10 years, three or four tours in many instances. Some of them have been wounded. They're not prepared for the demands of the current economy, and there are no jobs for them. And how do we then live with ourselves if those of us who enjoyed a peacetime here at home can't in some way link arms with them and say, we're in this together? Another question. Let me see. Over here? Is there a microphone? To my left? Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I was wondering, um, one thing that I've always noticed about America has always been the sense of American optimism and the fact that things will always tend to work out. Um, I talked to somebody whose parents grew up in Russia and he was saying that the Russians, it's the exact opposite. They always think it's all going to go to hell somehow. And I was, was wondering how we should or if we should or how we could reconcile the American optimism with, as you said at the end, the fact that it is time to have a grown-up conversation now, especially next year. Well, I think that we ought to have an agenda that we can arrive at in some common way. And that's I, I try to do that in the book, I suppose. I talk about not just public education and the need to, to do something about that. We have to train a whole new generation of workers for the modern workplace. And there is an explosion across the country of community colleges because they're doing that. They're training people in the modern demands of the, of the workplace. Uh, a lot of young people coming out of high school now are making a realistic economic evaluation about what they can afford. They can afford a community college and the, and the skills that they may get there as a nurse practitioner or a medical technician of some kind or a teacher's aide even and they can do it for a reasonable amount of money, rather than go off to a four-year institution and get a degree in humanities, they need to have something that's a skill set. But that ought to be a part of a national agenda. That ought to be something that we're debating this next year and how we get to where we need to go. I'll just give you two examples um, of that. In 1996, as long ago as 1996, I was in Seoul, South Korea, covering the Olympics, and we were doing nightly news in the middle of the night because of the time change. And the first night I was in a building on a rooftop overlooking a courtyard. I didn't know what the courtyard was. At about an hour before dawn, the lights began to flicker on in this courtyard. There were flashlights. So when I finished, I went down to find out what was going on. It was a junior high. These were junior high school students who were doing their homework by flashlight waiting for the doors to open at the junior high. And I came back and I, I was like Paul Revere. I went all over America saying, this is what we're up against. This is, this, is the, this is a country that had been ravaged by war in the 1950s. And when it emerged, as it had been before, it was really still a Stone Age agrarian society. Now it's one of the great industrial miracles in the world. The president of Korea was recently in the White House and Arne Duncan, the president's education secretary, relishes telling this story. President Obama said to the president of Korea, is a kind of a conversational gambit. Um, what are your challenges in education? And the President of Korea kind of lowers in. He said, the parents just demand so much more from us. And uh, that's 
in, a, in effect what we're up against here, and that's what we have to be thinking of. And being optimistic alone is not going to get us there. In the past, we've been kind of fortress America. Conditions have changed profoundly. There's a lot of enterprise going on across the country, quite honestly, of stuff that is being done, people adapting to this. I think you're going to have a lot of young Americans working abroad, for example, because we still train the best engineers and the best scientists and the best managers in the economy, and there's a desperate need for that in the Middle East and the Emirates and other places. So objectively, conditions have changed, and we can't be inhaling the vapors of the past. We're going to have to meet the challenges of the future. I'm going to take a question from the left, and then I'd love to have someone in the balcony ask a question, but yes. Uh, yeah, on the current state of education reform, how much do you think the uh, current like, um, economic crisis will affect what we can do with education reform? And also, how do you think the attitude of the American people affects um, how successful our educational system is? Well, I think it's a very pertinent question. Um, it's already having an impact in some areas. What has been heartening to me is that about three years ago, I guess, or maybe four years ago, it's hard to absolutely track exactly when this happened. There was this kind of sea change in American life. People woke up and said, wait a minute. We can't continue just to educate suburban school kids. We've got to do something about the inner city as well. We've got to do, we have an obligation to them and we also have a need. So we've got to educate all the socioeconomic classes. And the current system isn't working, so let's try some new things. You know about charter schools, you know about magnet schools. Here's something that's happening pretty rapidly. There's this kind of public-private enterprise going on now. One example I write about in the book is my favorite one, and it's, it's quite grand in its own way. In Atlanta, there was a neighborhood called East Lake. East Lake had an, a traditional old golf course that had gone to seed. It was Bobby Jones' first golf course. But what had grown up around it was what they called Vietnam. It was a very low-income housing area, African-American, single parents, 5% graduation rate, and so much violence that the police rarely went into the area. There's a man in Atlanta by the name of Tom Cousins, fourth-generation Georgian, very, very successful commercial real estate developer, and a man of enormous integrity, strong uh, faith. He's a Presbyterian. And he looked at that and he thought, this just should not stand in our state. So he went around to a group of his friends and he laid out a plan that he had. And they all said to him, Tom, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. And he just looked back at him and said, I lost a lot of money in your dumb ideas. I'm going to lose some money on my dumb idea. <laughs> he has done nothing short of a extraordinary transformation of that area. He bought the golf course, repaired it. He's a big golfer. Sold memberships, took the money, made a foundation, went to the community and said, you need mixed income housing here. You need to have middle and upper middle class people living around you. And we're going to rebuild the school. They're very skeptical. Who's this white guy who's a developer? Is he coming in here trying to take our homes away? You cannot believe how successful it is. It's so successful that when there was a documentary done on it, he calls it a purpose-built community. Warren Buffett called him, said, I'm in. Julian Robertson, one of the founders of the hedge fund industry, said the same thing. They've got one going in Charlotte, one going in Indianapolis. I think they're going to do one in Omaha. Big project now in New Orleans. Now, that is a, that's, a, that's going big. And, uh, but it's also a template, if you will, for what other businessmen can do. They're very worried in a lot of businesses that they won't have a workforce or that they won't have 
customers that will have the education skill set to make enough money to buy their goods so they get it finally and we all play a part in it. Look, I sent our kids in, in the middle of Manhattan to private schools. I am a pure product of public schools. I could afford to. I'm terribly worried about the public schools at that time. But Meredith and I decided that our obligation would be to give back in some other fashion. So we both have been very, very active in the public school system in the city. She runs a book club up in East Harlem. I worked with another school in East Harlem. I've been helping a public school teacher up in the South Bronx reconstruct her school so it can be not just a school but a community center as well. That's a small, and I'm not saying this to draw attention to ourselves, as one of my friends said, you know, you do all that and you still have the same breakfast every day and you still get to go do the things you like to do. And I say, you know, that's all true. It doesn't take that much time. And, and that's one more demonstration of that phrase that I used at the beginning about we have to constantly renew ourselves as citizens. I have to mention my mom's downstairs and she's a big fan of yours. Uh, my question is a, um, simple, but it takes one moment of explanation. When I went and talked to people organizing Occupy Wall Street in October, they told me two days before I came up they had $30,000 in donations. The next day they had $50,000 and uh, the day I was talking to them they had $100,000 or $150,000. If we take the reporting from the New Yorker from a year or two ago, um, about the Tea Party receiving several billion dollars from the Koch, from the Koch Foundation um, and lots of specialized training about how to get on message. You see already a large disparity in the ability, the access to the media and the ability to get a point across. I, was, I wanted to ask you, as someone who's seen the evolution of American media over 70 years, uh, how we have the important conversations you want us to while uh, in... While, while the distorting effect of money and media exists. I'm not sure I got the last part. Could you, could you repeat the last part of your question, and, and, please? Right. Yeah, and uh, just speak uh, up just a little bit. Sorry, you, you asked, uh, you told us we need to have um, the, these important conversations on where we're going, on what we want to become as a nation. How do these conversations happen when, as we see today, money is one of the major controlling and warping factors in our national media? Well, I, I must tell you, in the current environment, politicians uh, respond in a nanosecond to the, even the idea of an organization that comes after them with all, uh, all the members of Congress in the United States Senate, and for that matter, local politicians as well. I have somebody up constantly monitoring websites and, and online uh, uh, bloggers who are coming after them. So it's not hard, really, for citizens to get together and decide this is how, how I want to move the needle and this is the politician I want to talk to. Howard Schultz, who is the CEO of Starbucks, for example, is trying to create this national movement to get money out of politics. Don't give any money to, to politicians. I, I, I hope I'm getting at the essence of your question about what can be done. Again, let me get away from the Tea Party for a moment. I use this as an example in the book about the power of organization. There was a Maryland mother who lost a child to a drunk driver. Her name was Candace Leitner. A lot of you know who she is. She was uh, an ordinary person who was in a rage because her daughter was taken away from her by a man who was heavily intoxicated. She created something called Mothers Against Drunk Driving. She changed this country because what she did was identify was a social ill that we all knew existed, and she demanded that it get corrected. And as a result, we have ex 
exceptionally different attitudes about drinking and driving today, new laws, policemen pick you up, you get breathalyzer, you go to jail, you lose your license, uh, you have designated drivers. It used to be kind of sport to drink and drive, not anymore. Bars are held responsible. That's just one example. I went out to South Dakota two years ago to help a friend who was a breast cancer survivor. And she said, could you come out for the opening of uh, Coleman Race for the Cure? It also happened to be the opening of pheasant season, which was an added lure for me. That's a religious holiday in South Dakota, the opening of pheasant season. So I didn't think there'd be very many people there because it was hunting was going to be starting that day. 4,000 people showed up to run at the University of South Dakota, and I met these women who came from all over the state who were breast cancer survivors, and they were bound together uh, by their common cause and the, and the feeling that they were doing something, that they were making people aware of the need for mammograms and working on cures. I came back to New York, went to the Giants game the next day, and all the linebackers and all the big offensive linemen were wearing pink chin straps or pink shoelaces, and that was all the result of Nancy Brinker, who promised her sister that she would try to find a cure for breast cancer, and she started off with a shoebox full of names and very little money. So the power of organization, especially with the new tools for spreading the message, is there. It's a matter of finding like-minded people. I hope they got it some of what you were trying to Okay, it's a quarter to six. I'm going to exercise the prerogative of asking the last question, if I may. Um, as an American, as an African-American, and as a marshal in the 1963 March on Washington, I recall the euphoria I felt when Barack Obama was elected as president. It was a point of inflection in the history of our country. I'd be interested in your analysis of what has gone awry. Is it is it the agenda? Is it Obamacare? Is it the uh, unending anxiety? Is it the economy? Is it race? What has happened? Is it rabbit, rampant and rabid partisan politics? What, what has happened since I, that I think three years ago? I think it's all of the above, Hugh. Um, I, I don't think race is a primary component in, in terms of the opposition to him. I think that, in fact, his principal lieutenants, many of whom I know well, we've had these conversations, have said they were not prepared for the systemic damage to the economy that had been done. And no one was, quite honestly. I mean, you just take housing. We still have 20 million homes that are either in foreclosure or in, in peril of being in foreclosure. They thought they would have, if not a V recovery, at least a U recovery at, in the spring of 2009 when economists were saying the recession is over. So they made a big mistake, and I thought that at the time, and they plunged into the morass of health care reform. It took longer, it was more complicated, and it played out for a longer period of time. And it created an opening, frankly, for their opposition because of the mandates and the side deals that they made. And then, quite honestly, the president had never really operated in the private sector before. Uh, he was a man who had been a community organizer, and then he'd been uh, a senator for not a full term. And he was, I was even witness to that, he was not entirely comfortable talking with a lot of business leaders who were coming in to see him to talk about what needed to be done. It was not a language that he talked or that he was comfortable with. So there was this kind of schism that opened up about where he was going. And then finally, he had always believed that, uh, and this is the basis of his book, uh, you know, the whole business of hope and reconciliation. When you get to Washington, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you're in the you're in the gun sights 24/7, and um, he probably didn't step it up enough. I'm, 
I don't mind telling you this. I, uh, this happens with every administration, or it has for the past several. After I got back from Highway 50, I was asked to come to the White House by a friend of mine who was a very senior advisor to the president, just tell him what was going on. That happened in the Bush administration. It happened in the Clinton administration. I said, I don't advise presidents. I'd be happy to be a reporter. So, and the president wandered in. And what I said to him, I said, the country's divided into two parts, in my judgment. One is, one is half-cocked in the ticked-off position. That was the, those were the antecedents of the Tea Party people, and, and you can't deal with them. They just have given up on everything. I said, the other half of the country, many of them voted for you. They were independents and they were right-of-center or centered Republicans. And they just feel like you turned your back on them. And they're out there trying to hold their community, their business, their family together uh, in a provincial way across the country. And you need to find a way to reach out to them if you want to kickstart what I think the country needs which is a sense that, that, that there is hope and that there is a, a destiny ahead of us. I had the same conversation with Mitch McConnell and John Boehner after coming back. I went to them and they said, what are you hearing? I told them the same thing. Um, the country is not listening to you all because they've given up on you because of the way you deal with each other. There's always going to be these partisan tensions. So, you know, it's the toughest job in the world. First toughest job is running for president. Second toughest job is getting the job. Uh, and this president is learning that, and it's been, it's been very difficult for him. I was talking to a friend on the way over here today, and I said, I've just been all over the country again. I was in New England and the Middle West and the Southeast and the Far West and the Southwest and the Northwest. I didn't hear anybody with a great passion about any of the candidates. No one was up there saying, you know, Obama is my guy. I'm going to live and die with him. I still believe in him. Um, on the Republican side, same thing. I didn't hear anybody saying, Mitt is getting a bad deal here. He ought to be our next president, or I'm thrilled that Newt has risen to the top. There's just more puzzlement than anything else. I will tell you one personal story. I don't mind sharing this. My, my uh, eldest daughter was an early generational supporter of Obama. Um, she flagged him early on and said, this is the guy from my generation, Dad, and has stayed with him. She's big on health care reform, for one thing, as a physician. So we had a, a Washington East Coast America tour for our granddaughters last spring, and they came back, and we did all the rituals of Washington and Williamsburg and Monticello and Stanton, Virginia, and other places. But as part of the arrangement, I through the east wing of the White House, Mrs. Obama's side, I arranged for a uh, tour of the White House. And we kind of got the VIP treatment through the east wing first with all the portraits of the first ladies and got to go up into the kitchen and the pastry chefs were working on a dinner that night. Then we were down in the portico between the east and west wing. There's a little walkway there and Mrs. Obama's chief of staff came along and we were talking to her. I had my daughter, my son-in-law, my two granddaughters and Meredith. Then all of a sudden, the president came from the east wing to the west wing and spotted us, came over. And um, Jennifer stepped right up and said, Mr. President, I was there with you at the beginning, and I'm still with you. And he put his arm around her, and he said, talk to your father. <laughs> she said, I have, and I won't stop, actually. So that's it. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much.